Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Some people seem to have a natural ability to be inspirational, and that's often based on their own experiences. My guest today is Dr. Melissa Upton, and she is one of those people. Dr. Upton is the former president of ASCP, and she's also had a pretty incredible career before that and after. Today, we're going to talk about that career and how some of the lessons that she learned throughout it have stayed with her going forward. All right, here's Dr. Melissa Upton. When I was doing the research for this episode, I saw a quote from you and it said, my greatest influences were my parents who instilled in me my conviction that access to education is the most powerful tool for good. So I thought about this quote for a little while and I'm wondering, can you explain how, how did they instill this conviction in you? I grew up in East Tennessee in, and in an area I was born in Michigan, but my family moved to Tennessee when I was one year old. And at that time we lived in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which was a center for science and research. My dad was an experimental pathologist and we often spent time driving outside Oak Ridge into the surrounding area, which at that time was extremely poor. Many people did not have indoor sanitation or running water indoors. It was a very depressed and poor area. My dad always reminded me that I, all of the wealth and opportunities that my family had were because of his education and my mom's education and how rare that was, that fewer than 1% of the people in the world had a college education or the opportunity to do work that they found meaningful or enjoyable, that many people were simply surviving. Mm -hmm. And my dad always reminded me that I wasn't better than any of those individuals. My mom was a design major in college and she basically for many years was a housewife taking care of us, raising us. But as a volunteer, she taught adult literacy. And that was something I heard about from her and met some of her students. Some of them went from being completely illiterate adults, unable to get a job to being able to successfully find a good job and support their family. So that was also a very concrete example of how powerful access to literacy or access to education can be. So my parents always reminded me that I wasn't more intelligent than the people who lived around us in that area or any place, that it was really about opportunities and access to education that's transformative. And my dad was an experimental pathologist and he loved his work, and he always said that he was paid to play. And the only people who could be paid to play were people who had access to education to the point where they could follow their passions, follow their interests, and excel, fulfill their, their full potential. And it sounds like this lesson really stuck with you, I mean, to this day. Oh, definitely. I've seen that play out in so many settings in the world and so many of my colleagues and friends in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology come from backgrounds where they're the first college graduate 
and it was transformative for their opportunity to interact with people from all over the world. I mean, you've seen that yourself in your in your role as a pathology assistant that yeah. you've had a chance to meet people from all over the world, which you might not have had if you had not gone on and gotten a good education after finishing high school. You know, the, the horizons and the opportunities expand as we get more education and more skills. Right. And yeah, and you're right. And the it's not just getting the education, but having the opportunity or, you know, like you said, the access to it, to be able to do that. Access is critical. And it's one of the drivers for my passion. I'm, I'm really a, a clinician educator with, certainly I've done lots and lots of clinical work, but my real passion is in the educational aspect because it's so transformative to see people start a training program and ex- and expand their horizons expand their sense of self you know the word education means to lead out from and that really is so moving so incredibly touching when i see it a shy person make a presentation at a national meeting and the confidence the self-esteem that they get it's just remind i get reminded of that every single day watching residents and junior colleagues grow it and you know achieve their goals it's just incredibly moving and touching it's the i think the best joy that i have is seeing my students or my children develop and do things that i would never imagine doing and fulfill their own individual potential not replicate me but exceed what I would even dream of doing because they figure out, they get the skills, they get the confidence to figure out where their passions are, what questions they want to ask, and then they move toward that. So I, sometimes I feel like I'm a, I'm a tour guide. I'm sort of pointing, here's one trail you can explore, and maybe you might need these particular tools to go up that trail, but they might find a different trail, but at least they've got a tour guide to talk about. Is there an avalanche over there? Or, you know, you know, I literally think that often as educators, we're tour guides in the sense of we've had some experiences, but we haven't had them all. Yeah, I love that. That's a, that's a great way to put it. I, I like that a lot. So we're talking about education, which is definitely, a, a I think, a theme throughout your career but can we go back and talk about sort sort of your your beginnings your early education i mean i have to think that your father certainly influenced your decision to go to medical school or or, or was there more to it than than just him no i think that that was absolutely the case my my father's textbooks were on the lowest shelves in our bookcases where in the living room where i spent most of my childhood playing when it was raining outside and my father was very good about allowing us to just pull those books off the shelf. So I remember before I could read, looking at pathology textbooks and looking at the textbooks of surgery that I pulled off the shelf. So I think I've been interested in medicine before I could read, for sure. What happened to me, however, and my mom, actually, my mom went back and got a PhD in Spanish literature when I started high school. So she was also very inspiring in the sense that, well, first she was inspiring when she taught adult literacy. She did lots of volunteer work. She was very engaged in the community. But she also emphasized to me that it's never too late to undertake training 
or to take on something new. It's never too late. And she did that. She she went ahead and got that PhD and then went to be, she was actually teaching in bilingual education. But part of what happened to me was I was, I went to a very good public school in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. The high school in Oak Ridge was very large and my parents were afraid that I would be lost there. My sister and I were, my sister was two years older. So when they were looking at schools for us for middle school, they sent us to a small private school in Tennessee and it was a girls school. And at that time, education for girls really de-emphasized or under-emphasized math and science. The consequence of that was that when I got to college, the very first day I was pre-med, I walked into the classes and I looked around and met the students in the class and I realized I could not succeed in those classes. I was in classes with students who'd gone to magnet high schools, who'd had AP calculus or AP biology, chemistry, they were repeating calculus, biochemistry, biology, because to be a pre-med student, you needed to get A's. And I was going to be taking it not only for the first time, but with skill sets that were really deficient. My girls' school, we almost never got through more than half the book in mathematics I had never been able to take calculus because I hadn't even gotten, they didn't offer calculus in that school. So it was very interesting because that experience replicates from, you know, you could look at me and think I had this very privileged childhood. I went to a private school. My parents were well-educated. But the experience of walking into college with inadequate math and science skills to become a doctor is actually very similar to the experience of millions of students in the United States and in other countries where there are tremendous disparities in the quality of education. If you compare one school system to the next, many urban high schools don't offer AP courses. Many really bright students are overlooked and not put into gifted classes. So that to me was a very poignant personal experience. And I later, when I was at Harvard Medical School, teach, I was at Beth Israel Deaconess for a while, 11 years. I was a mentor in a summer program for Native American students called the Four Directions Summer Research Program, which is still going. It's wonderful. Many of the students are hoping to go into medicine. And some of them come from small tribal high schools where they don't have the AP classes and they, their experience was very similar to mine. And I had several very beloved students who extremely bright, extremely capable, but they didn't have the skill sets to thrive on the MCAT. Mm -hmm. Many of them have continued in healthcare, but, but some of them could not go on to medical school. Some, of course, could, depending on their preparation for college. But that was very poignant because here you have extremely capable, bright students all over the United States. And I was one of those students who don't have the skill sets necessary to be successful in technologically intense classes in the university setting. So that's something that's really stuck with me because it's not an abstract thing for me. It was a personal experience. I had to, I, I majored in history. 
I worked for two years and about a year after starting a minimum wage job, which is all you could pretty much get with just a history degree at that time, I had coffee with a friend and told her how miserable my job was. And she said, well, what, what would you really like to do? And I started to cry and said, I'd always wanted to go to medical school. And she said, Melissa, for goodness sakes, you're 23 years old. What's holding you back from doing that? And so at that point, I was living in Chicago and I went to University of Illinois, Chicago Circle Campus. And I started literally with bonehead math, you know, two plus two equals four. Got to the, you know, did the fractions and logarithms and all of that because I knew I needed to be able to do those calculations so fast that I wouldn't have to struggle. And then I moved up and went all the way through the calculus there. Similarly, I did an introduction to chemistry and then did analytical chemistry, organic chemistry, biochem, physical chem. And then I got into medical school, but I had to spend two and a half years working part-time, supporting myself while I did those classes. I'm so grateful that places like Illinois Circle and also community colleges exist where you don't walk in the door and have to go straight into calculus or you're out of it. And that's still true for a lot of four-year universities. They don't have step-up courses that help people to get the skills necessary to thrive in pre-med courses. And to me, that's a huge deficiency. But I was, I'm, I'm eternally grateful that University of Illinois had those classes because then I could slowly but surely get those skill sets. But that's also been another important lesson for me that mm-hmm. it's not about intelligence. It's about skill sets. It's about access to opportunities and resources so that you can, you know, repeat over and over again if you need to the, the problems and questions you need to get faster and to get more confident with your skills. Then you, you mentioned earlier that the Native American program you were working with, is that how you would like would inspire those students by showing, okay, this is what I had to do and I did it and I succeeded and you can do it too. Is that kind of your lesson for them? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I, I always emphasize to people, this is not about IQ. This is about skill sets and opportunities. The challenge for Many people who come from backgrounds where they don't have a lot of money or their family don't have a lot of money is, or they may already be married, they may already have a child, they may be a single mom, is I had, I didn't have kids, I could work part-time, I could live on that and do those classes, but not everybody has that opportunity. That's also a privilege. Yeah. And they can do it, it may take longer. They could do a course at a time at night in, in a community college, but it's just a more arduous journey. And so I think one of the things we need to do in the United States is address the disparity in the quality of education across different communities. Because in the U.S., education budgets are often based on real estate taxes. So a wealthy suburb will have a wealthier school system that can afford all kinds of enrichment courses and AP courses and a high school in an urban area that's based on a tax base that has a lower income, the school systems are just less enriched. And that's a big challenge. That's a, that's a challenge that all Americans need to address together because this affects communities 
rural communities are are also very much cut out of these opportunities. They're smaller. They don't have a large tax base. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you went on to uh, pathology, which again is probably influenced by your father, right? Oh yes. Okay. I, did you ever consider any other specialty, or was it just pathology from the beginning? <laughs> it's funny that you asked me that. My father, my father was as introverted as I am extroverted, and my mother always said, "Oh, you shouldn't be a pathologist, Melissa. You should." be a clinician. And I actually went to medical school thinking pathology was going to be the last thing I was going to consider because I really love people. And I thought I would be an internist or a pediatrician or an oncologist or a surgeon. And honestly, Dennis, I liked every single rotation in medical school. I really loved them all. I got, I threw myself into everything and, and I loved all of those things. But I also knew that I loved looking at the textbooks of my dad's and all those beautiful images of tissues because i also majored in my i majored in history but i minored in studio arts so i have a very strong visual learning style and so i did a an elective in pathology i also really enjoyed pathology in medical school at that time we had one quarter this was at northwestern university in chicago we had one quarter that was only pathology. That was our only course. And in that course, we would get the organs on Monday, and we would have to do a gross exam and write those up. Then we got the slides on Wednesday, and by Friday, we had to write a CPC. So we had a complete autopsy case, fixed organs, and we were treated as if we were doing an autopsy and writing it up. And I discovered how much I loved working at the microscope. I had an aptitude for it, and it just spoke to me. I could look at the tissues and figure things out. And so that experience in my second year of medical school led me to put a two-month elective in pathology into my right after my required clinical rotation. So it was the first thing I did in the summer of my senior year. And that that was so enlightening. I absolutely loved pathology. But I also loved surgery so much that when I committed to pathology residency at Northwestern, I had a very honest discussion with the chair. I didn't take any time off in medical schools, I went straight through. So I was actually finished with all of my courses in December instead of what would have been the following June. I loved surgery. And the Department of Surgery offered me a six-month internship in surgery. And they said if I fell in love with surgery, they had they had, had several people drop out that I could stay on as a surgical trainee. So I had this transparent conversation with the chair of pathology that I was planning to do this six-month surgical internship, and there was a chance that I might stay on rather than coming into pathology. And he was great. He said, of course, explore that. But what I discovered is I really didn't have as much interest in the technique of how to remove a gallbladder, for instance, as I had in why was that gallbladder sick? And I wanted to follow that gallbladder down and look at what look at it under the microscope or look at it in the gross room. So that was a very, very important experience to confirm that I was more of a pathologist than a surgeon. Although I love doing procedures and I've 
I've been doing autopsies my entire career because I, I really do enjoy that part of medicine. And those of us who considered surgery can find, as you know, from being a pathology assistant, a lot of satisfaction in the gross room or in the autopsy room. Yeah. But I also, that, that experience has also really informed me, Dennis, because for young, for young people or for any person, if they're on the fence about something, there's no huge rush here. You know, they, there's no enormous rush. There's nothing lost. If you do a year of surgery and then switch to pathology, or if you do a year of pathology and find out you don't like it and switch to surgery, it's having worked with surgeons, learning how surgeons think. I'm a much better surgical pathologist. Mm -hmm. I, I can't even put it in words how much that has helped me. And I understand their impatience and I understand um, their need for certain types of information because I've been in that operating room enough waiting for the frozen section. So I, and then, and I often tell them that I, you know, I was a surgical intern and there's an affection that I feel for surgeons from that experience that I know I'm not sure all pathologists have that, that same mm -hmm. um, feeling of alliance and affiliation, if you will. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there isn't anything lost from doing that. If if anything, there's something you've you've gained something you've added to the the skill set like you were talking about earlier. Exactly. And perspective. It's like traveling yeah. to another country or spending a year someplace else. You just grow and think about life a little bit differently, which is all good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, since you you mentioned traveling to another country, now you you were a research fellow in Tokyo. Uh, at That's the correct. National Cancer Research Center. Now, now, I'm very curious about this because this was this your first time out of the U.S. Yes. Okay. And so, can you can you? I know this was like back in the '80s, but can you tell me about that experience? What was it like to be in a completely different culture? It was fabulous. It was absolutely fabulous, challenging, and fabulous. First of all, I had studied martial arts. I had a black belt in Aikido, so I had been oh, wow. studying with a, a Japanese teacher who had immigrated to the U.S., and he had many students who came from Japan and trained us. So I had, And I started doing Zen meditation in that particular dojo in Chicago. So I had already been immersed in uh, some elements of Japanese culture, and I had a great affinity for Japanese culture. And secondly, my father, as an experimental pathologist, my father's specialty was radiation pathology. And for many years, he was on the Radiation Effects Research Foundation, which studied the long-term effects of nuclear bombs, both in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and also in the Marshall Islands. So he had been going back and forth to Japan for many years. And in 1981, he had an opportunity to be a lecturer. And um, my mother at that time was working on her PhD. She was busy in her PhD and did not want to take the time to accompany him for this month-long trip through Japan. So he invited me and my brother to come. And I had the joy of spending three weeks traveling with my dad, meeting people related to radiation research. And I met people at the National Cancer Research Center. So again, this was a privileged opportunity. And then they, when I was there visiting the National Cancer Research Center in Tokyo, I was informed that they were going to be creating some 
guest foreign research fellowships. Because at that time, Japanese science still is extremely sophisticated. But back in the 50s and 60s, many Japanese, to gain scientific skills, had to travel to Europe or the U.S. So they also gained skills in English. But when I was there, uh, very few people had to go away or chose to go away because the science is so sophisticated in Japan. So they were really deliberately wanting residents and young faculty there to be exposed to people from around the world and also to be forced, if you will, to speak English all day long to enhance their ability to present at meetings. So it was a win-win for me. I was, I was spent, I spent two years there. I studied immunohistochemistry and molecular pathology, which also were skills that were very helpful later. But it was also culturally fascinating. My husband, at that point, I had married my husband. He also is a martial artist. He had trained in Japanese martial arts and also in meditation. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when we were, we had already had a child, our child was 17 months old when we went over. And my husband helped take care of our son, but my son was also in a Japanese daycare center right in back of the hospital, which was phenomenally good and i had to I had to write every day i had to write in japanese to the teachers who did not speak english what my son had eaten and how he'd spent the evening and they were very patient with me because i don't use the complex characters i i only could write in katakana and hiragana the phonetic spellings but i felt like a language student because i'd work all day and i'd go home and i'd have to read what they read what they wrote about andy and then i had to write down you know that what he did at home and what he ate it was fascinating mm-hmm. i i loved being there it was hard work it was six days a week of work and sometimes hilarious things happened i misread the label the labels on the buffers were in Japanese. So one day I used a buffer for my experiments that I didn't realize the label said buffer in preparation. I didn't realize until that day that the sign had in preparation on one side and com- completed on the other, and they just flipped the sign around. And so my experiments failed and debriefed with the team, and then they realized that I had no idea what the what the sign said on the buffer. And, and I learned, I, they didn't change the sign. I just learned which was which. <laughs> so, um, That's a good lesson. It was, it was funny, but it was also, it was funny, but it also taught me something about compassion. You know, sometimes mm, we're so okay. quick to judge people when they have, when they struggle with banking. Oh, I had to bank. I had to do my banking in Japanese. I had to go to the ATM machine, which had no English characters at that time. And, take out checks and deposit checks. And I just had to memorize the sequences of things. And, you know, that taught me, what about someone who comes to this country and may not be a rapid reader of English? It's so overwhelming to go through some airports or to go grocery shopping or to figure out what's inside a container. I bought I bought what I thought was mayonnaise one day in, in a supermarket in Japan, and it was hand lotion. You know, that was just really interesting because oh. it, it really almost took me right back to the stories my mom had told me about illiterate adults in the uh-huh. U.S. Because there I was basically illiterate. You know, that's that's interesting. You know, traveling to other countries 
if you are open to that lesson. Like I went to France. It was probably 20 years ago now, but yeah. And I knew a little bit of French, but yeah, for the most part, I was illiterate, like, like you said, and it was an interesting experience. And then if you come back to the U S and you realize that people, you know, just starting here that have just gotten here from another country, that that's what they're experiencing. And you're right. That does teach you uh, some compassion. It doesn't. I think we also forget how many languages we speak within English because we have the language, sure. Dennis, that you and I use for pathology. We have the language that when we go shopping, but there's a completely different language around politics or banking or getting a mortgage. And so anyone, I mean, even those of us who are native English speakers have to master that technological jargon when we start to explore getting a mortgage or applying for a loan. But for anyone who's not a native English speaker, they're going through that probably steeper learning curve with every single one of those different areas of life really involves different vocabulary. It's very, we, we sort of do it very naturally when we've grown up in the U.S. because we learn these things one at a time as we need to do them. But for an adult migrating here, it's pretty overwhelming. And mm -hmm. one of my colleagues here at University of Washington Dr. Nadine Zafar used to be a residency program director at Memphis, and he spent a lot of time developing sort of roadmaps for laboratory professionals and pathologists who were trained abroad and came here because we sometimes forget we recruit a wonderful person in to work in our lab. They're going through all that learning curve of different laws, possibly different technical language related to these different elements of daily life while they're also trying to function at a high level in the job. And it would be really good if we could just remind ourselves of that to have an extra dose of patience and compassion mm -hmm. because those are not easy. It's not easy to be sort of in a tsunami of information when you move to another country or when you move even to another city or another region of the country, there's a learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. This is the people of pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Melissa Upton. We'll be right back. LabVine enables improved healthcare by helping labs future-proof, transform careers, and build professional relationships. They do this with tools, solutions, and resources curated from internationally recognized sources. I want to tell you about several new features on LabVine right now. One of them is the Lab Relevance Compass from Jeremy Schubert, who you might remember from episode 65 of this podcast. There's also a webinar that Jeremy did that goes into more detail about the Lab Relevance Compass, which you can find on VineStream. You can also find a couple of new courses on communication skills from 2020 Science, and there are several new content experts as part of the ConfLab as well. You can check out LabVine by following the link in the show notes, and you can sign up absolutely free. And while you're there, you can also listen to the People of Pathology podcast right there on my VineStream channel. Now back to Dr. Melissa Upton on the People of Pathology podcast. Most of the people listening would probably know of you from your involvement with ASCP, especially your time as, as president of ASCP. So I want, I want to talk a little bit about that experience there for you. So how did you first get involved with ASCP? Like in what sort of capacity? My first major volunteer role in ASCP was they were starting, at that time they were starting 
maintenance of certification as a concept nationally, and ASCP decided to offer CME and SAM credits for journal articles. And so I became the first CME editor for the American Journal of Clinical Pathology. And in that role, I was on the publications committee as well, which the committee and commission members in ASCP who are engaged very, you know, highly engaged volunteers have a chance to go once a year to a volunteers meeting where lots of different elements of the organization are discussed and there's cross-fertilization from one commission or one committee to another. So through that role, I was more and more engaged at the, at the level of the national level of ASCP. But my real entree was my educational passion. And when people ask me about how to become involved in a national organization like ASCP, I always encourage people, you really need to follow your own passion. If your particular passion is informatics, take that and work with that and find opportunities around that. Mine happened to be education. So CME made a great deal of sense. And also I had done a year long program at University of Washington called Teaching Scholars, which is basically about many elements of being a successful teacher. Again, Dennis, we get, we get thrown into teaching, but most of us have absolutely no formal instruction in how to be a good teacher right done yeah. that year-long program and that gave me a lot of understanding of different elements of teaching like evaluation compared to how to write good multiple choice questions there are many different elements of education there's a whole science of it which i had not understood or known before i took that year but that those skills and that training also helped me then to go on to the Commission for Continuing Professional Development, which is the commission in ASCP that oversees the entire educational portfolio, which includes the journals, the books, the online courses, the proficiency testing, the um, annual meeting, of course, live courses. But So from CCPD, being on CCPD, then I became chair of CCPD and then onto the board. So it was really a journey based on my particular educational interests. But mm-hmm. the board is very diverse on ASCP skill sets wise. We don't, we deliberately don't want to have six people who are focused in education or six people who are microbiologists. The spectrum of pathology, the spectrum of the activities of ASCP is so broad that we always want to have at least one board member who is on the CCPD, at least one who is, has had experience with leadership in the board of certification. We have laboratory professionals, of course, on the board of ASCP. So it's, it's very, it's very mixed in its skill sets. The board is very mixed. And I also encourage people that. If you want to be president of ASCP, it's not so simple as running for president of ASCP because we basically are the person. Once you get onto the board of, of directors of ASCP as a pathologist, you have the opportunity to do two, three year terms, and then you have an opportunity to apply for the executive committee, which is the secretary, treasurer, vice president, president. Our secretary and treasurer positions, by the way, are open for laboratory professionals. So those are also positions 
that you, for instance, could apply for. And so there again, we look at the executive committee in terms of broad skills and perspective. So it's really more about what people really are interested in doing and where their skills are aligned. But not everyone should be on a board of directors of ASCP or the board of governors of the College of American Pathologists because those particular groups are covering a huge spectrum of activities. So I've told some individuals, if your passion is virology and only virology, you really don't want to spend an entire weekend having people listening to people talk about advocacy or listening to people talk about what's going on in a particular section of pathology that doesn't pertain to you. So if you really want to be a research virologist, you're probably going to want to seek roles in ASCP or other organizations that pertain to your expertise in virology. If that's what your focus is, if you want to get grants and you want to have time to really spend on investigation, you're going to want a more specialized role in your volunteer work. So, and you can have that in ASCP or CAP or the big organizations. You can be on a subject matter expert team, or you can be a journal editor for that particular specialty. But that's another part of the mentoring process is what do people really want to do and how do they really want to spend their time? I was a history major. I love to think about big questions. I'm passionate about education. So the board was a joy for me because it really was quite, it's a good role for a generalist and it's a good role for someone who's interested in the whole, all the different elements that go into the practice of pathology and laboratory medicine, but it's not for everyone. And it, it's, it's, um, I always, I don't know if I'm trying to, I'm trying to say this very clearly. I think people really need good mentoring about which volunteer role they pursue. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have to do something that uh, speaks to you? Something that is, uh, it has to be interesting to you, or you're, I don't think you're going to be, you're not going to do as good of a job with the role. Is that kind of what you're trying to say? And it has to be aligned with your own goals and vision of yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now you mentioned being a history major that you like to look at big questions during your, your term as, as the ASCP president, one of your major initiatives, one of your big questions was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I have to think that comes from some of your experiences that we've talked about earlier about growing up in Tennessee, spending some time in, in Japan. Uh, Is this, is this partially why this was important to you as an initiative? Absolutely. And there, there are several things. Valerie, Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh had written an article about her experiences as a black pathologist in the magazine, The Pathologist, which and that came out during my presidential year. And I went, holy mackerel. You know, I looked in the mirror. I said, Melissa, if you don't address the challenges that are being faced by black pathologists and others who are not advancing at the rate that they deserve in our profession or into our professions in the first place, then this is the opportunity. This is the year to do it. And I was really very blessed that I called Dr. Blair Holiday and I said, you know, 
I know we've already annualized our budget. We've already got our year's goals and everything is all lined up with the staff, but we've got to do this. And he said, Melissa, we'll always find the resources to do what is right. I'll never forget that. It it moved me so deeply. But you know, we have an interesting we have an interesting challenge in pathology. As you well know, 10% of the positions in the labs for laboratory professionals are not filled. Yeah. We right. have fewer than 30% of US graduates in med- for medical school going into pathology. And yet we have talented people from many backgrounds who want to go to medical school and would enter our profession if they have an opportunity. So to me, you have these two sides of the equation, and it absolutely makes sense that as a profession, we look at ways to bring these talented people into our workforce. It, It just makes perfect sense. On a personal level, it absolutely resonates because I've been one of those individuals who didn't have the education or skill sets and had to work hard to address those so that I could go into this this profession. So on a personal level, I've absolutely experienced what it's like to enter college. And I actually initially felt stupid. Initially, I didn't think I didn't have the perspective at 17 years old to go, you know, this is not about my personal deficiencies. This is about educational deficiencies that could be addressed. I didn't, it didn't, I didn't have the ability to do that. And I think many young people don't. They just think that they're deficient. And we can fix that. We can help people get these skill sets. We can help people learn about the opportunities in our profession. And the wonderful thing about laboratory professions is there are lots of different entree points. People can become a phlebotomist and get certified. They can become a medical medical laboratory assistant and become certified. Then they can work on to get the MLS if they choose. I personally, Dennis, think that we should have the ability for an MLS graduate or a PA graduate to go ahead on into pathology if an individual chooses to do that without starting over to go all the way through medical school. Medical Hmm. school is balkanized because there's a a guild mentality in medicine to try to protect the number of people in medicine so that there's no encroachment on the practice of medicine. And that's understandable. And I'm not arguing for giving an MD license to people who haven't completed medical school but you took lots of biochemists. You took biochemical, organic, or analytic. Right. You took a lot of those courses. MLS students have taken very rigorous courses, uh, analogous to a, a pre-med student. And I think that we need to lobby or work with our medical school structures to to lubricate the process for our highly skilled people to advance and stay within pathology. And I, I'm not sure how we do that. I I think we start by having a discussion about it. Yeah, I mean, I personally know quite a few pathologists who had been, uh, worked in the lab previously, whether it's a PA, uh, medical laboratory scientist, even phlebotomists as well. Yeah, so that that's an interesting, interesting uh, idea. I, I like well, that. I've known about at least 10 pathologists who first were MLS 
graduates. And then, of course, you, you interviewed Dr. Carla Ellis, who was a PA yeah. before she went to medical school. Right, but Dr. Right. Kimberly Sanford, who is the current president of ASCP, is an MLS. She was a blood banking specialist, and she worked in the lab as a blood banking specialist for several years. And then she went to medical school, and of course, she's a transfusion specialist. So she she stayed in her same beloved specialty of blood banking and transfusion medicine. But Kim is very passionate. She'll talk about this, that the MLS root into pathology is very important for us to recognize and support. And many people who go into the laboratory professions are extremely bright. Many of them don't have the same resources or privileges as the population who go into medicine. And this is something that relates to, again, high school background, family resources, et cetera. But this is not something we couldn't address to help. I mean, if we have a workforce gap and we need people in the workforce, we can create creative, we can have creative solutions to enable people to get the training to advance in the careers that they want to pursue. You know, you mentioned uh, Dr. Carla Ellis, and when I talked to her, we, we talked a lot about the Society of Black Pathologists, and she talked about how you were instrumental in getting that off the ground and getting, you know, getting that started. Can you tell me about that? How, how were you involved in that? Well, right after the George Floyd murder, I received a very poignant message from Dr. Michael Williams, who is now a neuropathology fellow at, at University of Alabama. Oh, yeah. And I, I had, I, I, had I mean, my, I have never met Michael in person, but he's, he's beloved to me. Michael is, is one of my Twitter friends and has become mm -hmm. like a son or a nephew to me. I, I'm very fond of him, but Michael and I chatted a little bit on Twitter about the situation. And then he included a broader group of people, including Dr. Ellis, Dr. Fitzhugh, Dr. Jordan Reynolds, and others, you know, what 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 is the appropriate response and how do we respond to this? And and they came up with the idea of it was time to have a society of black pathologists. And I basically said, do it. I'll help you in any way I can. And I also suggested that there was a possibility that they could have a memorandum of understanding with ASCP and that with a memorandum of understanding, any group that has that with ASCP has complete autonomy. And I said, you must have autonomy. You must be able to be a companion society for the College of American Pathologists or to do a presentation with the Informatics Society or Microbiology or USCAP, any of those societies. You shouldn't be having to force that you're only going to present or work with one society. You need to have autonomy. And if you have an MOU with ASCP, we can share certain kinds of, of opportunities and resources with you. And so they have they went ahead and forged the society. Another challenge that was an interesting challenge is that if you look at any group of people, it's much more diverse than you might imagine. The Society of Black Pathologists comprises individuals from very different backgrounds. If you compare black people who are the current generation whose ancestors were slaves in the United States, their experiences growing up are extremely different from individuals who grow up 
in a country that is majority black, such as Nigeria, where they're always, they have always seen black attorneys, black doctors, and they have opportunities to go to university unquestioned if they come from a certain economic background. So the black pathologists who formed the society are really quite diverse. And so there was a lot of very important work to be done in recognizing that diversity always, so how shall I put this? You know you have a good team. You know you have a diverse team when you don't always agree. And the, there's a wonderful leadership training module for the, in the ASCP Leadership Institute on team building. There are actually several modules on team building. And I learned so much when I took that because in the early part of my career, when I would form a new team and the team didn't just, did not agree, I thought I had failed. And now in retrospect, I realize that's a sign of early success. And that's called storming because if by definition, you have a diverse team, and that can be diverse ethnically. It can be diversity by skill sets, diversity by specialties. You're not going to see eye to eye. You are not going to see eye to eye right. in the early stages of a diverse team, by definition. And I think this is one of the underlying reasons that people sometimes avoid diversity. It's not necessarily that they're biased, although there is implicit bias in selection. But people tend in, this has been shown over and over again in job interviews. No matter what job, people tend to hire people like themselves. And that's a big mistake. If I, as an, inter, as an extrovert, only hire extroverts, I am dooming the success of my team. And, but that's that they, the Society of Black Pathologists had to go through that stage of storming, which is true for any new group and to, to the, credit of Dr. Ellison, the other leaders who forged that effort, they got through that successfully. But there was a lot of discussion among them, good, important discussion. And I wasn't present for, for most of those discussions about, you know, which direction to take. Do we do an MAU? Do, how do we do our membership? To whom do we allow membership? And that's what's necessary with any new effort. It takes time, patience, and really the commitment that's sometimes really difficult for impatient people. And I can be very impatient sometimes. I have to remind myself that allowing time to hear all the perspectives, not just hear, but acknowledge, paraphrase, make the speaker know that you've heard, is just an incredibly important part of forming a new venture or a team that is diverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good lesson. I like to say that listening and hearing are not the same thing, not always, anyways. Exactly. Yeah. One of the other things you did in the area of diversity with many of those same people, you you were co-author on a paper that was called "Reversing Historical Trends." Can you tell me a little bit about this project and how you were involved? Yes, that is an editorial, Reversing Historical Trends is an editorial that appeared in the American Journal of Clinical Pathology after a wonderful article was uh, published with the lead author, Dr. Marissa White, where uh, doc that group looked at the 
proportions of people in pathology, male, female, and the different groups as classified by the major databases. So the classifications include Hispanics slash Latinx is one group, Native American, indigenous people, uh, Native Hawaiians are included in one group, blacks, whites. These are, of course, self-identified and they are not perfect classifiers, but this is the, from large databases. And what's very, very clear in pathology is that in terms of gender, we now have about equivalent numbers of men and women in training, but mm-hmm. as people advance in their career, um, women drop out and chairs of pathology are nationwide or fewer than 15%. In terms of recruiting people into pathology, the number of people coming into pathology from underrepresented, so-called underrepresented or marginalized groups, Blacks, Hispanic, Latinx, Indigenous peoples, are flat or decreasing. And this is this is over a 20 to 30 year period. So we wrote an editorial in response to that. I invited uh, several leading black pathologists to participate in that um, editorial. I felt that I had I'd seen the paper. I'd seen Dr. White's paper come over my desk in the because I'm a CME editor. And so I always look at every article that's about to come into publication. So I. Mm-hmm. called Dr. Croft, our editor, and said, I'd like to work with some of the leading black pathologists whom I know to write a an editorial about this really important paper because it's so important and it needs to be called out as important. And in this particular group, it was it was uh, Dr. Ellis, Dr. Nicole Jackson, Dr. Reynolds, Dr. Von Samadi, and I. We had several Zoom meetings where we talked about some of the core concerns that we felt faced my marginalized people in the profession. And we tried to incorporate in our editorials some of the suggestions of ways that our profession can address these, both in recruiting and in the way people are treated. And you well know that Dr. Ellis is is also involved as a wellness officer in her program at Northwestern. And she brought out in that paper the importance of wellness. And this is is critical as well. I have come to believe through COVID that wellness is not possible if we are set up to fail. And many, many pathologists and laboratory professionals have been deeply demoralized by the fact that although you've been working 24-7 to address the incredible barrage of needs related to COVID. People have been working to get tests set up and then additional test platforms and then the supply chain problems. And then lots of programs have been doing the vaccination as well, managing vaccination. It's, it's overwhelming. But then to discover or to learn or to have renewed in, in our knowledge that the access to testing and access to vaccines has not been equitable and that marginalized populations have suffered much greater mortality and morbidity from this pandemic is demoralizing. It's demoralizing whether a pathologist is from one of those marginalized groups or not, because we all, I think, fundamentally 
really care about our patients and want to deliver high quality care. And when we're up against systems that are inequitable in access and in treatment options, it's, I think it's demoralizing. So I think wellness for the professional is absolutely aligned with our need to advocate for systems that increase access, increase participation of our patients in developing roadmaps for care. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it seems like for many programs now, at the resident, residency programs, I think I've been seeing a lot of, about them kind of putting more of a focus on wellness for their for their residents and, and their staff. Is that is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, wellness, yes, they're putting more focus on wellness for their staff. But so, Dennis, I've been med- I'm a I'm a lifelong meditator. I meditate an hour in the morning. I meditate an hour at night. Wow! Okay. I eat extremely well. I exercise at least an hour every day. So I'm doing every single thing that people are told to do to maintain wellness. And yet, I was really feeling extremely stressed by the anguish and grief of the news to see the disparate access to testing. So I have said this to many people, you can do a lot to improve your personal health. I have very good personal health, but true wellness also requires the entire fabric of society to be healthy because we're not atoms. We're not individuals who live on little islands what affects my neighbor affects me deeply. What affects my neighbors in India, my neighbors in Africa, they are part of my family. And I really feel that. And when my family is suffering, I cannot be well. So I really think that the emphasis of institutions, some institutions have toxic cultural environments. They are putting demands for increasing RVUs. It's specious. It's dishonest to imply that we can erase the stress of that by just meditating and exercising. It helps to to stay well personally, to try to stay fit, to eat well, to sleep. But true wellness, true wellness requires us to transform the institutions and the neighborhoods we live so that people feel a sense of belonging, a sense of empowerment, a sense that if they have a problem, they can get some help to address that problem. And it's painful when we live and work in a system where, oh, my husband's a cancer survivor, and we would sit in the waiting room in radiation oncology where he was getting treatments every day, and I met families who'd lost everything they owned to pay for their testing and treatment for cancer. And there's just something so incredibly unjust about that. It it still sits with me. I still think about those people. Why should that be? Why in such a wealthy country with so many resources do we not create better systems that support wellness for all? Because I don't think we individual professionals in laboratory medicine pathology can be well until we've built systems of care delivery that help everyone in our society thrive. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. You can't have 
part of you can't have part of the society be well and the other part not that doesn't that it affects everyone like like you're saying yeah it affects everyone yeah all right now as far as like the field of pathology i mean when it comes to diversity and inclusion i know there's there's lots more work to be done but there's been so much talk about it and i feel like i feel feel like you know, and it, it, this is me as a white person saying this, but it seems like we're making some progress in that area. Y- yeah, there's more work to be done, but you do you feel like we're kind of on the right track? I think we finally started to look at the elephant in the room. We finally started to yeah. acknowledge yeah, definitely. that we're finally starting to acknowledge that we have work to do, and that is a critically important first step. We're finally beginning to have some difficult conversations to look in the mirror and go, you know, how am I, how am I privileged or how am I extending opportunities to others? I think there are important steps to take in ASCP. One of the steps that we've, that I took after my Presidential years, I worked with staff members to revise our volunteer application process. It used to be that if, let's just say, I were chair of a particular committee and I had a, an opening on my committee, I would sort of think of, well, who do I know who might be good for this position? And that's not a diverse way to do things because I might only know people from the three or four major institutions where I've worked. I might not even know someone wonderful from Arkansas or someone from North Dakota, who would be superb on that. So now we have an application process that requires all the applications for that particular committee to be looked at, reviewed for what are these person's skill sets, what's their experience, what would they like to do. And that's actually, it's a small step, but it's actually increased already the diversity of our volunteer committees mm-hmm. because we're looking at um, people we might not have even thought to call before. And and that's really, really important. But I think every organization really needs to look at how are my policies and procedures in this institution potentially perpetuating privilege or perpetuating the same structures and not fostering diversity. It's sort of we have to flip it. We have to think in terms of if you if you have an organization, if you walk through the hallway and look at the past presidents of any organization, look at the wall. What do they look like? Do you see, how many women do you see? How many people of Asian background do you see? How many black people do you see? Mm-hmm. How many people do you see who have a Latinx or, or Hispanic surname? And these are really important questions because otherwise we, we don't see our tendency to pick people who are like us. And I I think that that's, I think we need to do a more deep dive into our policies and procedures. The other thing about that article on reversing historical trends, there were black students, medical students who applied to pathology who did not match. And I have to ask, why should any medical student in the United States who's interested in pathology not match? And so we need to have some holistic assessment of people's applications. A person who's gone to a high school with two AP classes in, or AP classes in all the sciences and then goes to college and thrives in a 
Victoria University at the top level, by definition, that person is probably going to do better on the board ex- board exams than someone who had to resuscitate their skill sets. I did not do superbly well on the first boards, the first st- step one. I didn't, even though I'd worked really hard to address my skills, my step one scores, probably if I were applying to pathology today, I wouldn't make the cut to get into some of the major universities that have used a score cut. Okay. And wow. So I think that we need to look more holistically. If someone has gone to school part time to get that, those skills and they're working and maybe they have a kid, maybe that's pretty good evidence that that person can multitask and thrive. And if they've gotten an A in organic chemistry or they've gotten, you know, if they've passed their major courses in medical school, why should that person not be considered to have an opportunity to come into pathology? I just don't, it's just nonsensical to me that we're using certain numerical cutoff scores. It doesn't make sense. It's not, we're not serving our profession well, and we're certainly not increasing access to diverse groups if we do that. Right, right. Yeah, those are very interesting points. Dr. Upton, this has been just a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could talk for at least another hour about some of these <laughs> things. Uh, but yeah, you bring up a lot of a lot of good points and a lot of questions to, to think about. So I, I really appreciate your time here. Dr. Melissa Upton, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And I hope we do have a chance to talk again, Dennis. And, you know, I'll, I'll hopefully see you in October. I'd love to have coffee with you and, and just catch up because in an ideal world, I'd love to reverse roles and interview you. I mean, maybe sometime on this podcast, you should you should ask someone like me to reverse roles and, and you have a chance to talk and be interviewed because I'm sure you have really fascinating things to share. Oh, so. that's a good idea. That'd be, that'd be really fun. I no, like I'd that love idea. To do it. I'm honest. I'm serious. I'd love to do that with you if you want to think about doing that at some point, because I think that the whole, the whole realm of the route to PAs and what PAs offer and how important, and particularly I was thinking about it last night, knowing I was going to talk to you that the staging of tumors has gotten so much more complicated that PAs are absolutely critical. There's no way we can train residents to have the sophistication in approaching specimens in the short time they're in anatomic pathology training. And they get two years of training. And many places don't do very much gross room. University of Washington still does a lot of time in the gross room. But still, you know as well as I do, if you see one or two whipples in two years, how how well do you really understand that? And as the staging evolves, you know, every few years it evolves and changes. I, you know, they didn't have PAs when I first started practicing it, but it's so essential because of the complexity of, of cancer treatment now. It's so essential. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I'd love to, as I say, I'd love to at some point reverse roles. If you want to think about that, I'd love to do that with you. Yeah, that'd be fun. Great big thanks to Dr. Upton. I've got some comments on this conversation, but first I want to tell you about the next episode of the podcast. I'll be speaking with Dr. Sarah Copeland, who among many other things is the head of the Liverpool Ocular Oncology Research Group. Here's a short preview. And I think through that whole process, I realized what interests me most is the the pathology and uh, the underlying pathology. And so then I, uh, I thought actually, I really like pathology 
and so then I um, explored the option of doing pathology and at the end of these I guess three to four years I had a bit of time and I approached um, Professor William Lee who was based in Glasgow at, um, and I asked whether he would take me on as a, like an observer and uh, so I think that then really made it concrete during those three to four months that I uh, looked at particularly eye pathology with him, human eye pathology. And yes, I, so at that time point, I decided, okay, no, I don't want to do ophthalmology, um, even though a position was there <laughs> in the making for me. I did. I said, uh, no, I really want to do pathology, and uh, and so I then commenced a six to seven year <laughs> training in uh, general and then specialized pathology. All right. So I think there are a few important lessons from this conversation with Dr. Upton. And the first one is probably the most important, and that's never forget where you came from. Dr. Upton certainly hasn't. And the lessons that she learned growing up and throughout the early part of her career, she's kept those with her and still practices those to this day. And another important lesson is that there is always more to learn, whether about a different topic or about yourself or other people. So you should always be open to those opportunities. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn, or you can just go to peopleofpathology.com and all the links are right there on the website. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.